0: If you'd open your Bibles to Revelation 15, please. And then we come to another then word that starts, verse 1, which this is sequential stuff. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast... Now, that explains right there that they've come out of the tribulation. They've been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb sang. Now, I want you to notice these are people who have actually come out of the tribulation. They have obviously been killed by the Antichrist, And they now are in heaven. But notice they're not standing in heaven singing this song about them and their sacrifice. You expect to read that. Watch what they do in verse 3. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your people who are here tonight to partake of it. I pray that you would use your word to instruct us, Lord, and minister to us tonight. I pray we would have a solid understanding of what is actually being taught here to us by you. And we will thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a study done a while back about the themes that most preachers are preaching on, and it came down to two themes that were the most prevalent among preachers. They preached God is love, and they preached man is good. There wasn't a lot of preaching about the fact that God is a judging God or wrath God. And as a result of that, we're creating a real dangerous environment here. For example, you have young kids who are taking guns and going into schools and killing people, and then they kill themselves, and they just think once they leave this world, it's just going to be some happy land for them. They don't understand you. are going to face the wrath of God. And they're not being taught that from pulpits. They're not being taught that God is a God of wrath. But then along comes a book like Revelation. And when a book like Revelation comes along, most people, even most ministers, they don't know quite what to do with it. So when they come to a book like this, they either neglect it or they reject it or they butcher it. Because this book of Revelation is probably one of the most butchered books in all of the Scripture. There are a group of ministers who actually teach people that the purpose of the Great Tribulation is to purify the church. The church isn't here. If you systematically crawl through the entire book chronologically, if you take the words literally, there's absolutely no way you can legitimately conclude that. The church has not been mentioned since the end of chapter 3. The church is gone. And when you look down through these verses, one thing that catches your attention is that what is being sung is actually called the Song of Moses there in verse 3. And Moses is not a man who was connected to the church. Moses is the great leader of Israel. What most people don't realize is that God has a future eschatological program for the church, and God has a future eschatological program for Israel, and God also has a future eschatological program for the nations. And each one of these programs is distinct. Each one of these programs features specific revealed texts that address that. For example, when Paul said to Titus concerning the church, we're looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, he's telling us how this is going to end for the church. The church is going to be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the sky. We're looking for that to happen. We're looking for him to appear in the sky, not to come back and put his feet on the ground and be here with us, we're looking to be caught up in the air to go to be with him. We're not looking to receive the wrath of God in the great tribulation. And it's very clear that this great tribulation is certainly all about unleashing the wrath of God. It's coming straight out of heaven. Now, Revelation 15 is the shortest chapter in Revelation, but it's a powerful chapter. And it gives us a great introduction and great information to the finale of God. It's a great prelude to it. There are three final visions that show up here, and John kicks them all off by saying, I saw this, and I saw this, so let's not quibble about the fact that we think this is just some mystical vision that he's getting. He says, I saw these things, understand that. He says that in verse 1, then I saw, he says it again in verse 2, and I saw, and he says it again in verse 5, after these things, I looked, and he saw these things. The fact that John saw these things means they're literal. He's not writing mystical dream stories. He's writing reality as he saw it. He was given the privilege of actually going into the future. And we know that because that's how the book of Revelation opened. There's a future that's going to be discussed in the book, things to come. He's launched into that period. He sees this stuff. Now, the first vision that he sees is the vision of finished wrath. We read in verse 1, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. We're in a a series of wrath judgments that started in chapter 6. It's been a while since we've been in chapter 6, but man, back there you started with those seal judgments. That started in chapter 6. Then when you get to chapter 8, the seventh seal is broken over, and that's got the trumpet judgments, and they take us from chapter 8 to chapter 11, and then now you're in the bowl judgments, and they're kicked off here, and they're launched off. We're going to study them. And John said, I saw every bit of that. I saw this. And he begins by saying, I saw another sign in heaven. And the then the conjunction that starts this off says, here's another thing in the sequence. So after you've gone through the six seal judgments or the seven seal judgment, which is underway, the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments that we're about to launch into, I saw the sequence of all of this. Now, you cannot help but read that and realize there is a chronology to this. I mean, this happens, then this happens, then this happens next. There's a chronology to this. And the angels have been using their sickles to destroy people on earth. And after John saw that, he saw this, he saw another sign. And it is another sign, we learn from verse 1, of the wrath of God. Thumas in Greek. That's a word people better get, because it's a word God wants us to get. He repeats it again in verse 7. He repeats it here in verse 1. He's mentioned this in Revelation. He's mentioned two different words, orge and thumas. This particular word, thumos, I mean, we're talking about hot, angry, raging, passionate wrath. We're talking about the wrath of God. That's what he's described here. John said, I saw another sign in heaven, and it's another one of those same kind of signs that I've been seeing in Revelation. It's another one of those wrath signs that I've been seeing in the heaven, which is at the throne of God. That's where I saw these things. And he says, I've been looking at these things, and I've been launched into the future to see these things, and I've been writing them down for you in the order I saw them. Now, contextually, this is another one of the signs of judgment wrath that he's been witnessing ever since chapter 6. You know, there's an interesting observation that one theologian made. He said, you know, people don't want to think about hell, but he said, if you carefully study the New Testament, you'll discover that the person who teaches on the subject of hell the most is Jesus Christ. So if Jesus Christ is teaching on the subject of hell, people better take it seriously. Now, a sign in Scripture is something that's designed to reveal plain truth about something. A sign in the Bible can be something verbal or it can be something visible. There were various instances in the life of Jesus Christ where a verbal sign was used to illustrate his death and the kind of death that he would experience. In fact, Jesus used a verbal sign to Peter in informing him how he would die. But what we have here is John sees a visual sign, and the sign, he says, is classified as great and marvelous. I saw a sign in heaven. At this point in the tribulation, it was great and marvelous. That word great means this was a sign of great magnitude. I mean, this was a sign of size and degree and rank, a mega sign. Apparently, it outdid the signs he'd seen before. And it was a marvelous sign, he said. A marvelous sign. It's the kind of thing, John said, when you see this, you just stand back and you're amazed and you wonder and you think and you realize this is awesome. Now this is how John views the signs that he's seeing in heaven, but what the sign turns out to actually be are the seven last plagues that God is going to pour out on this earth that's going to finish the wrath of God. In heaven, from John's perspective, this is a great and marvelous moment. I mean, this is a majestic moment in heaven, but if you're here on earth... If you're here on earth, when they're looking at this in heaven, it'll be the worst of the worst of judgments. See, those of us who are on our way to heaven, we look forward to this moment. We're longing for this moment. We can't wait for it, quite frankly. We wish it would happen soon. We wish we would be raptured tonight, and then seven years from now, Jesus Christ would come back and take over the world. Before he does, there are these plagues he's going to pour out. And the earth here, at this point, is about to experience those seven last plagues, And that's interesting because that particular noun, plague, is a word that refers to death wounds, death calamities, death blows. So John's in heaven and he sees these seven angels who are about to pour out the final series of death blows on the earth will bring everything to a conclusion and culmination. And John says, man, this was a great, marvelous sign. In heaven, this great moment of praise and rejoicing is going to take place, but on earth, this will be the most terrifying death edict, and disaster to ever hit. We think in view of the next vision, this is Israel that's in view. And if our chronology is accurate, we are now moving rapidly toward the end of the second half of Jacob's trouble, which would be the second three and a half years of the tribulation. I think that probably during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, God's just going to bombard the rest of the world with wrath. But when you get down to the three and a half year point, and that Antichrist surfaces, and he turns against Israel, now the wrath turns toward Israel. Everything changes at the three and a half year point. Things are aimed straight at the nation Israel, and the final things of the tribulation all have to do with that. That's the first vision John saw. Now, the second vision he saw was this vision of victorious worship. Verse 2 says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous. Are your works, O Lord, God the Almighty, righteous and true, are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's just so interesting that the wrath of God judgment that causes men to blaspheme and curse God on earth is the same wrath and judgment that causes those right with God to worship God. I mean, the things that people are blaspheming and cursing about God are the same things that cause people in heaven to worship God for. Every now and then, you'll hear someone say, well, when we get to heaven, we won't know about God's wrath because that would really make us sad. Well, you look at this text? Look at this text. We'll all know about God's wrath. We'll know exactly what's going down on this earth. We're going to be watching this scenario just like John. We'll be experiencing this, and we'll be praising God too. We'll be worshiping God just like these were. And as John looked at this vision, he saw some very impressive things, five facts he saw. First of all, there's something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. He said, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, John saw something like that when he first got to heaven. Let's back up to chapter 4, if you would, for just a minute. Chapter 4. And I draw your attention to verse 6. John is caught up to heaven in verse 6. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal... And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front behind. So John had seen this sea of glass that was like crystal, but the critical difference between what he saw in chapter 4 and what he sees here is that the sea of glass in Revelation 4 is not a sea of glass mixed with fire. So the logical question that anyone reading the scriptures or studying the scriptures would ask is, why is there a difference? Why is there a difference? Well, the answer lies in dispensationalism. The first glimpse, John got of heaven occurred at the end of the church age. Does it occur near the end of the great tribulation? The judgment that occurs for the church is not the judgment of wrath, any wrath. The bema seat judgment is not a wrath judgment. The BBC judgment will determine rewards or loss of rewards for believers. Believers have already eliminated the wrath reality from their lives through faith in Jesus Christ. So wrath is not an issue for believers when they get before the Lord because that's been solved at the cross. But in Revelation 15, 2, a wrath judgment is the reason these people have died. They've died because of wrath. They hadn't trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why they found themselves in the middle of this mess. And by virtue of the fact that the sea is mingled with fire indicates that those that are standing there, they've been severely judged by the fire that is of the wrath of God, and they stand now in purity before the throne of God. These are obviously people who did believe in the Lord during the tribulation period. They're killed at the time when Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet are killing Jews. In fact, they're killing about anything that's connected to God in the world, but they're their prime target. And these are obviously those who didn't take that mark, and they obviously have been killed for it. They experienced judgment, as it were, because of that. They had rejected the Lord. They experienced that judgment. The second fact that's brought out is these people were victorious over the Antichrist. The text says they had been victorious over the beast. What we specifically learn here is that these people in heaven were there, and they refused to join the Antichrist on earth when most of the world was. These believers refused to take the mark. They obviously are executed for it. But now you see them after the execution. There they are. They're at the throne of God. They're worshiping the true God while the rest of the world is down here on earth worshiping the Antichrist. They refused to give their allegiance to him during the tribulation. As a result, the great privilege they have is to stand before the throne of God. They are totally and completely pure, and they're holding harps of God. The third fact is, he saw people standing on the sea of glass. That's what he says. And they were standing on that sea of glass. That literally may mean they're standing on water. Jesus walked on water. It could actually mean that. But it now means that they're there and they're clean, they're pure. Their sins are no longer an issue. They're there in heaven at the throne of God. And then he says, fourthly, he saw these victorious people holding harps. I find that interesting, holding harps of God. Now, music is obviously going to be important to worship, and it certainly obviously is here in heaven. And the fact that they're holding harps of God indicates they're preparing to worship God at the most sacred of places, the throne of God. And I doubt, I doubt seriously that during the time of the Antichrist and the false prophet and during the days of the great tribulation, these believers have taken harp lessons. I don't think they've scheduled harp lessons to be taken throughout the tribulation. So what that does show us is that in eternity. God will give his people the skills to do whatever it is he wants them to do. They're going to have those skills, and I think playing harps would be one of those things. Now, of course, a question that would be worthy of asking is, well, why would these who've been coming out of the tribulation stand before the throne of God and worship God by playing the harps? Because they didn't worship God while they were here on earth. The church did. Every first day of the week, the church got together and they worshiped the Lord. Man, we have sung the praises of God for years. We've listened to the beautiful, reverent hymns played in this church for years. And we've had the privilege of worshiping God and studying the word of God. This group never had that option. Never had the option because they weren't believers. In the church age. But they came at an unusual time to understand that Jesus Christ was their king and he was going to come back again. And they obviously refused to take the mark of the beast during that time. So when they get to heaven, they're going to have to do a little catch up work on worship. And so apparently, one of the things that God does is he puts a harp in all of their hands. They obviously have skills at that point to play it, and they're able to have a very special moment where they worship God. And the fifth fact is they're singing a song, verses three and four, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, the song of the Lamb sang. There are 12 critical themes that develop this song that we want to talk about for just a few moments. First of all, they're singing a song of Moses, the bondservant, and they're singing the song of the Lamb. I think they're connecting both of them together at this moment. Now, when you think of the Song of Moses, we have gone through the book of Exodus and we've gone through the book of Deuteronomy, and there are two times in Israel's history where they sang a song that was called the Song of Moses. We have that text in Exodus 15 when they crossed the Red Sea, and when they got to the other side of the Red Sea as they were about to embark on going into the wilderness. They sang a song of Moses. But I think more in line, this one has a lot to do with what happened in Deuteronomy 32, and we crawled through that psalm. But I do want to take you to a couple of passages from each of those books tonight to show you something that I think is significant to this text. So let's go back, first of all, to Exodus 15. Exodus chapter 15, if you would. And just pointing out a verse from Exodus chapter 15, and you'll notice in verse 1, then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord. Now, I want you to drop down to verse 11, if you would. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who's like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you've led the people whom you've redeemed. In your strength, you've guided them to your holy habitation. The people have heard they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembled, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them by the greatness of your arm. They are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you've purchased. You will bring them and plant them in your mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Now, there is a critical eschatological prediction that was being sung just as soon as they crossed the Red Sea. And the eschatology of this is there will come a day when terror and dread will fall upon all the nations of God and all of the people who are in that land of Canaan that belongs to Israel, they'll be gone. Because God will rout them. That's the song of Moses there. Now I want you to go over to Deuteronomy 31, if you would, please. Deuteronomy 31. And I just want to point out something that's critical here because we'll connect this to Revelation in just a second. In Deuteronomy 31, this is where God tells Moses, you write this song. And God has more in mind than let's just sing it around the campfire in Israel. I mean, I want you to notice what we read in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. Drop down to verse 17. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. They will be consumed, and many evils and troubles will come upon them. Is not this because our God is not among us in these days? But I will surely hide my face... In that day, because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it in their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. Drop down to verse 21. Then it shall come about when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify before them as a witness. For it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent, which they are developing today, before I brought them into the land which I swore. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the sons of Israel. Now drop down to verse 29. For I know that after my death, you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you. Now watch this in the latter days. Whoa! This song has implications for the latter days. The latter days, the book of Revelation. This song has ramifications for the latter days, for you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were complete. Now, I'm not going to take you through the song. You can go back in your Deuteronomy study, go through the whole 32nd chapter, and you can see the whole song that he wrote. But I do want to draw your attention to the finale of it, starting at verse 39 of chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. Because here's the song being winded down from the pen of Moses. Starting at verse 39, we read, "'See now that I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I've wounded, and it is I who heal.'" And there's no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. I will make arrows drunk with blood, and my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Now there's the song of Moses. Now you're in heaven. Jump the clock forward. We're getting near the end of the tribulation. You have this group that they're in heaven and they said, sing that song. Sing that song. Why sing that song? Because it's about to be fulfilled. Everything that I have promised concerning Israel is about to come true. She's going to have her land. She'll have her king. She'll have her righteous king. All of the enemies are going to be routed from that land. So, there's this song of Moses, and they're singing the song of the Lamb. They're Obviously, they rejected Jesus Christ as the Lamb and as the Savior, but now that they're there, they realize who he is. They're singing about that. The third theme is they're singing about God's works. They're great and marvelous. Now, this is the same group that have been killed in the tribulation period, and they're standing there singing about the works of God are great and marvelous. See, your perspective is just altogether different when you're right with God. I mean, you realize that God is a sovereign God, no matter what's going on, positive or negative. And they're praising God for this in heaven. There's no quibbling about his sovereignty. There's no quibbling or questioning him on what he's doing. Your works are great and marvelous. The fourth theme is they're singing that God is the Lord God. They're identifying the Lord Jesus Christ here because this is the song of the Lamb. They're identifying the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord God. The fifth theme is they're singing that God is almighty. He's the omnipotent, Almighty God who has all power to do whatever it is that he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. And then they're singing, according to verse 3 of chapter 15 in Revelation, that his ways are righteous and true. All of God's ways are righteous and true. Get that in your brain and communicate that to people. Why would God let this happen? His ways are righteous and true. I'm not God. He doesn't have to answer to me. But I will tell you this about him his ways are righteous and true. And in heaven, these songs are going to be theologically accurate. We're not going to be singing a bunch of fluff stuff that moves people's emotions and brings them to tears. We're going to finally be singing songs about the reality of the great character and genius of God. We'll be singing about the fact that he's righteous and true. And when he judges and pours out his wrath in the tribulation. It's a righteous, true judgment. The seventh theme is they're singing that God is the king of the nations. That's what he says in verse 3, king of the nations. In other words, the king of kings is about to come back and take over the world. They're singing about that. That was recorded in Moses' song, and now they're bringing that up. This is about to happen. We're near the moment that is included in the song Moses wrote. The eighth theme is they're singing that God will be feared by all. Verse 4 says, Who will not fear, O Lord? This is a trembling kind of fear. It's an awe and reverent fear. Jesus Christ will be reverenced and feared by all, and so will God. Wise people fear the Lord right now. Fools don't, but wise people do. They govern their lives in a fear of the Lord. The ninth theme is they're singing about God's name being glorified by all. There in verse 4 God will be exalted at the level he deserves. You have all peoples. Look at that, verse 4. All nations will come and worship you. All people will glorify you. I mean, all of the people are going to worship God finally and glorify him in the way they should. There'll be no more discussion about trying to take God out of things. God will be honored in everything. The 10th theme is they're singing about God alone is holy. I love that about it. You alone are holy. No, what about his people? Nobody, nobody, even the best of saints gets close to the holiness of God. We've been seeing that in Romans. That's why we all have to have an imputed righteousness to us because we don't have his level of righteousness. He alone is at that majestic, holy level. And those people who are in heaven realize it. Think about this. These people now are standing in heaven with all the saints of all ages and they realize We don't have his level of holiness. He alone is holy. The 11th theme is they're singing that all nations will worship God. That's what verse 4 says. For you alone are holy, for all nations will come and worship God. Oh, I just can't wait for that. I just can't wait for that. That tells you right now, this thing has not happened yet. Because there's never been a time in history where all nations of the world have worshipped the God of the Bible and been singing about The greatness of God, it just has not happened. And the 12th theme is they're singing about God's righteous acts that have been revealed. That's what it ends, your righteous acts have been revealed. And the righteous acts they're talking about are judgment acts. So what they're really doing here is they're praising God from whom all judgment flows. They're in heaven and they're praising God because he's pouring out his wrath. See, people want a love God, they want a forgiving God, but they don't want this. But this is God. And people who have a right perspective of God realize it. There's vision number two. His third vision is the vision of the temple and the tabernacle glory, verses 5 to 8. After these things I looked... And the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Now watch this. This is intriguing. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, when we see the words, temple of the tabernacle, what do you think of immediately? National Israel. You don't think a local church. When you see temple of tabernacle, you think of national Israel. So all of these things that we're about to see, that John is seeing here, is connected to Israel. They're on the verge of being fulfilled. And there are eight sights that he sees. First of all, he saw the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony open. Now that's interesting. He says in verse 5, I saw the temple of the tabernacle and the testimony in heaven was open. Now that testimony is the law of God. That's what's in the temple tabernacle, the law of God. And that law of God is open. And that law of God is open. It shows every single man is a sinner, just like Paul says. Right there, right there at the temple of God, the tabernacle of God, there's the law. So somebody going to try to get before the Lord God and say, well, I've been pretty good, all right, let's call it up. You've got a record. Let's just call it up, let's examine the law of God. Because here's the law of God in the most sacred of places, right at the throne of God. And in that tribulation, it'll be the law of God that will condemn every person on this earth. Every person on this earth has reached a new level of evil and demonic activity on this earth at that point in time and that law of God is right there it'll be the judge it'll be the hammer secondly John saw seven angels who had the seven last plagues these will be the worst of them thirdly he saw seven angels come out of the temple this is sacred judgment I mean this is judgment that's coming directly out of the temple of God this is the finale of it These seven angels are given this great responsibility to go and pour out the finale of the wrath of God on the earth. The fourth sight that he saw is these seven angels were clothed in clean and bright linen. What that tells us is these are priestly angels. These are priestly angels who have holy, pure ministry that's about to take place. This is a holy, pure ministry of wrath. The fifth sight John saw, he saw these seven angels with golden sashes on their chest that represents pure majesty and glory of God, pure representation of God. These seven angels are authorized right out of heaven to come and pour out a pure priestly wrath on this earth. And the sixth sight he saw is John saw one of the four living beings give the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God. I just find that so Intriguing there in verse seven, where John says he saw this, because there's real ceremony to this. You know, nothing God does is just loosey goosey off the cuff. Everything God does is decent and orderly, and even in the finale of wrath, when God is angry, I mean, He has stored up all these years what they did to His Son. Nobody's got away with that. He's kept that on file. He's kept the record of how they mocked His Son. And what they did to his son, I mean, that's storing up wrath in heaven. And so at this point in time, it's time for him to settle that score. This is the God who lives forever and ever. And these golden bowls indicate that God is going to pour out his pure wrath. And there's a real ceremony to all of this. I mean, there's real decorum in the way this is handled in heaven. The seventh sight John saw the temple filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Verse 8, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. we never seen that in the church. Israel hasn't seen that really since the days of Solomon. I mean, there's been no evidence of this. That's the kind of thing God did do, though, when he displayed himself to the nation Israel And this is definitely connected to Moses and Israel. And when that cloud was in the tabernacle, no one, even Moses, was permitted to enter it. And when Solomon's temple was dedicated, the smoke filled the temple, no one could enter it as well. And when Isaiah saw smoke in the temple of God, he thought he was doomed because he'd just seen the manifestation of God. So clearly, when John is looking at this smoke, this is reference to the glory of God. But the eighth sight is, and this is interesting, John saw no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues were finished. We read in verse 8, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. In other words, you cannot have access to God until the wrath issue is resolved. That's what you see right there. In any relationship with God, by the way, that's true. In any relationship with God, you cannot have a relationship with God until the wrath issue is resolved. What is literally physically happening here is the final wrath of God is about to be poured out on the world, and that will finally open up access for the world to have a relationship with God, the likes of which has never been seen or experienced before. But this is something that every single human being needs to understand. You cannot have a relationship with God until the wrath issue is resolved. And there's only one way to resolve it at this present time, and that is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are given his righteousness. It is judicially imputed to you, and your case is closed. Believe in him. You never have to worry about God's wrath. Let's pray. If you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can settle that right now. Just Call out to him and then put it in your own words and invite him to come into your life. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word and we thank you for your great book of revelation. Thank you for biblical prophecy. Lord, this is just a thrilling thing to see from our perspective. In fact, it'll be something when we're in heaven to be able to just watch all of this from that angle. But as we wait for the moment when we get out of here, the rapture of the church, I pray we'd be good apologists and defenders of the faith. I pray we would have our faith solid and stable and be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us questions about things. In Jesus' name, amen.